Timothy. So what happens when you're in First Peter for so long? Second Timothy, three sixteen and seventeen. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Dear Holy Father, again, as we have just sang about that firm foundation that has been laid for our faith. And so, dear Holy Father, may we truly grasp that excellent word that uh, your word is. And may we, as we get to see the power of the truth of the gospel, that as it goes forth with power, how it redeems and it saves. And so, dear Holy Father, may we uh, never uh, cease to be amazed at the power of the truth of your word. Guide us now and give us wisdom as we uh, grapple with this topic today. In your name we pray, amen. So we're going to take five weeks here. We're going to take a five-week break from 1 Peter, and we're going to look at five Latin phrases. And now most of you might say, why in the world are you going to look at five Latin phrases? Is it because you just have some wonderful uh, thing about Latin, even though I would say Latin's great and everything? But um, what these five phrases are... These are going to be five phrases. You will, some of you may know them as the five solas. And if you say, what is a sola? Well, we'll get to all of that in a second. But these five phrases are not five phrases that were just kicked around and someone said, let's find them in the Bible. These are five phrases that literally come from the text of Scripture. Scripture, I would argue, is shouting them at us. Not in Latin, but they're shouting us at us as we dig into these truths. Because if we're not careful, we can get so drawn into um, the here and now that we forget that we have a faith that has been once delivered, passed on through the saints faithfully to us today. And we're going to take a little journey back through church history. And we're going to land, if you want to call it, on the reformers. And now what a reformer is, a reformer is someone who takes something and doesn't want to throw it completely out, but wants to change it and bring it back into right understanding. And so what we're going to see is that there are going to be men and women all throughout church history, but mainly during the time of, you recall, the Reformation, that were starting to study the Scriptures. Now they started to study the Scriptures, they started to listen to what the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church at the time was telling them, and they would say, "Well, well, there's a problem here. The Bible disagrees with you. And as they started to dig into Scripture, they started to realize that what you guys were saying the Bible says is not what the Bible says. And so now the question is, well, what are we going to do about that? And these reformers would start standing up against the Roman Catholic Church. But that was a day and age that the Roman Catholic Church and the political powers were one. So if you disagreed with the church, you disagreed with the government, and you disagreed with the police and everything else. And so if you were seen as a heretic, someone who went against the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, you would be told that you're a heretic and meet either a fiery doom or some type of death because that's what you do with heretics. And so when we look at these five solas, these five solas I truly do believe are what are going to be a key distinction as we move forward as CBC, keeping us on the path from error and keeping us on the path of truth. Now, I would argue these five solas are the heartbeat of, I would even argue, the, the Christian Protestant movement. And I would argue these five solas are what define us. And so I, we don't enter into this lightly. And so you say, well, where are these five solas? And the first sola we're going to look at today is sola scriptura, which is a Latin phrase for scripture alone. And I'd like for you to read here with me in 2 Timothy 3. I'll be reading This in 2 Timothy 3, and we'll start in verse 14. But as for you, continue what you have learned and have firmly believed, 
knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. I'll summarize this. Scripture is profitable for everything. That's about as summary statement as you can get in that text. And so we have to ask ourselves again, point number one is what is sola scriptura? What sola scriptura means is literally what this text is saying. And so before I get in the definition, let's look at the text. All Scripture. And when it means all, it means all. All is breathed by God, given to us by God. And what is it for? It is profitable to teach us, to instruct us. That word teaching there means the idea to instruct you in the way you are to go. To Then it goes on to reproof. And this, is, this idea of reproofing is helps you know what is true. It instructs you in the way to go. It reproves you. It helps you know what is true. It also, the text goes on, it's for correction. It's to bring you back in alignment with the truth. And not only that, and the text goes on, it's to train you for righteousness, to bring you to maturity. The Word of God will instruct you, it'll tell you what is true, it'll bring you in alignment with what the truth is, and it will grow you into maturity, literally, so the man of God may be equipped for every good thing. So when we say Scripture alone, what we're meaning is that all truth Necessary for salvation and spiritual life is taught in Scripture. We mean that all truth that is necessary for salvation and spiritual life is taught in Scripture. Another way of saying this is that the Bible is the source of everything we need to live a godly life. If you want to live a godly life, you don't need to go anywhere other than the Scripture. You don't need to go to any other writings. You don't need to go to anything else. Scripture and Scripture alone is what is there. Now, so, that would also mean, then, to find out about God, we do not need to look to the culture in its definition of God. We need to look at what the Bible says about God and submit to what the Bible says. To find out about man, then, we don't go and look at a psychology book. We don't go and look at some type of other teaching about man. We don't need to study Freud and try to figure out what we think. What we do is we look at what the Bible says about man, And we teach what the Bible says about man and everything that it says. But it's interesting, though, culture likes to come at us hard. If we say that the Bible is our soul, faith, and practice, when culture comes at us and it continues to try to say, is this what God really meant? What was the oldest temptation in the garden? Eve standing there, and God had told Adam and Eve, you can eat of any tree you want except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then what does Satan come in? Did God really say that? The answer is yes, He literally, really said that. But the question is there, did God mean this when He said it? Did He really mean this or did He really mean something else? And we are faced with that all the time. We live in a day and age where we all like to make sure that everybody's happy with us, and all of a sudden we get to the teaching of Christ that says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And we go, well, that doesn't sound as exclusive as we like it where that teaching literally teaches that there is no other way to God but through Jesus. And if you do not believe in Jesus, you are in error in your sins with the weight of eternal judgment upon you. And that's not a popular saying, but it's the truth because this is what God says. Same thing, too, when it even comes to gender, is where all this, the fluid stuff is going all around with this, and God's Word tells us this. Now, we may not be popular to do that, but it's not depending upon popularity. If it's Scripture alone, it's what Scripture says. And this is what we are called to submit to. 
And yet it's interesting the distortion of the gospel that has gone on even in the late, if you want to take it through 1950s on, there's been this distortion of the gospel that has made the gospel something that the gospel not, never in the Bible is this said. And I'll give you an example of where this plays out. There are some that will try to describe what salvation is as if there's three votes. So you get God's vote, and the vote of God is for you. You come over here, and Satan's got his vote, and he votes against you. And then we say to man, you're in the middle here. Where are you going to cast your vote? Now, that may sound wonderful. That may even sound like, hey, that sounds really great. The problem with that is the Bible does not speak in terms of that. First of all, Satan and God are not on co-equal terms. Neither are you in the middle in co-equal terms. Because if God votes for you, it, what's got more power here? Well, let's even let's dig into what the Bible has to say on this. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2 and just listen to what the Bible says about mankind and about salvation. And I'd love to ask you, where's the voting thing going on in here? Ephesians chapter 1, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and that is in, now in work in the sons of disobedience, among whom you all once lived in the passions of your flesh carrying out the desires of your body and mind that were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Real quick here. We do not have God on this side, Satan on this side. Literally, what we and you in the middle. What this text is saying, where are you? You're dead in your transgression and sin over here following the prince of powers of the power of this air. You're, there's no voting going on until what? What's the great change in that text? But God, who is rich in mercy... Because of the great love in which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive in Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised up with Him, and seated with Him in the heavenly places, so that in the coming age He might show the immeasurable riches of the great grace of God and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works with God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. The gospel message is very clear. You are dead in your transgressions of sin. You're not voting anything. The only thing you're voting for is more sin. It is not until God comes in and opens your eyes to the power of the word that you come running to him and saying, I am a sinner in need of a savior in repentance. That is why we don't need a marketing strategy to market the gospel as if we're going to somehow twist people's arm into believing. What we do is we lay the gospel and the power of the gospel goes out with power because the power is in the gospel, not in the guy that's doing it. The power is in the word because God, who is rich in his mercy, has saved us. When we think through this here for a moment, though, I want to spend some time thinking about the historical challenges, though, to this idea of sola scriptura, this idea that Scripture alone is our only rule of faith and practice, because I want to make sure we pause here for a second and think it is not solo scriptura, meaning it's you and your Bible in the woods, all right? There is, there is great, great, great things we can learn from scholars of the past, and church teaching is not to be avoided, but... We must go like the call in the Renaissance. In the Renaissance call that went out, that, that literally was the thing that happened before the Reformation, in the Renaissance, there was this huge call, get back to the sources. So the Dark Age had literally moved a lot of, all of the, if you want to call it, the, the true classics of the past had been removed. We had death all over the place, black death and all that kind of stuff, just wrecking people. And all of a sudden, when all of those diseases were gone, there was this desire to get back to the classics. 
And the call that went out was back to the source, back to the source, back to the source. So you would have people going back to studying the Roman culture, studying the Greek culture, and all these other things. But that laid the groundwork for the church call to go back to the source. And what was the source? Scripture. And as they started going back to the source, even then in Scripture, guess what they started to realize? Well, what you're telling me and the source is completely wrong. And so what happened was everything that was starting to be built by the Roman Catholic Church, they were starting to realize that it had no foundation of Scripture at all. It was just tradition that they started to do. And one tradition built on another tradition built on another. And before you know it, you're so far off in left field, sometimes you're not even in the ballpark. And we were teaching that as if it was the Bible. The people start reading this. Um, There was a guy named Peter Waldo that when he actually started reading the Bible for the first time, he read it and was shocked that actually this is what it says compared to what was being said. And it literally spent a whole group of guys all over the French-speaking world just to open up their eyes and start going, let's tell you what the Word of God actually says because they truly believe that the power is in the written Word. And this is what is needed to be proclaimed. Everything, every authority that is there is only there because it is based on the ultimate authority, which is God's Word. The Roman Catholic Church taught this, the Bible on one hand, church and tradition on the other hand, and we hold them equally. Now, if you were to ask someone in the Roman Catholic world, do you believe in the authority of Scripture? They would say, yes, we do. But they would also add, We believe in popes and councils, that they don't err either. Well, there's a problem there. What happens when a pope and a council disagrees with the Word of God? Well, the Roman Catholic Church says, well, we follow a pope and council. And the Protestant says, no, we follow what the Word of God says, Scripture alone. It's not Scripture plus. And the Roman Catholic Church was saying Scripture plus. And this is where they would go down and they would look at our passage of Scripture in Timothy and they would say, all Scripture is God-breathed. That's great, but we also need plus. Luther once stated, he said, I, would, I opposed indulgences in all the papists. But he said, I never did it with force. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with Philip and Ansdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever influenced such loss upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. And as Luther would learn with the rest of the Reformers, it is the Word of God that changes people's hearts and minds. It was not themselves. It wasn't the way, the crafty way of doing it. Now, if you read Luther, you read some of the Reformers, some of them had some real wingers that they would throw in there against the Catholic Church who just well-placed jabs, but they realized it was the Word of God and the Word of God alone. And as these men started to study the Word of God, when you had guys like Whitcliffe who realized that he needs to get the Bible out into the English language and as he's writing the Bible out and people are starting to, be, to come saved, they started to realize these five truths that literally come out of when you take Scripture alone and Scripture alone is all you take as your only rule of faith and practice, there are four other truths that come bubbling out to the surface. Next, in these truths here, and you'll see in your notes, we see the idea of sola Christus, which literally means Christ alone. 
We only have one Savior, Jesus Christ. We don't look to saints. We don't look to Mary. We're not Hail Marian. We're not doing any of those other things. It's Christ, and Christ alone is our mediator. We do not need saints to go before the throne. We have one mediator, the best mediator of all, literally Jesus Christ himself, that boldly goes before the throne on our behalf. Next, we have sola gratia, which means grace alone. Salvation is by God's grace alone, not by works. You cannot make yourself good enough to be saved. Literally, if you could make yourself good enough to be saved, grace is no longer defined as literally God's merit given to you because you do not deserve it. All right, grace is undeserved favor. If you can somehow, you think that you're going to, here's my ticket that I'm voting for Tim, you then are now counting on how well you voted, not on God's grace. You somehow think you've earned it. It is God's grace and God's grace alone. And this goes forth in the gospel truth, that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. Run to the grace of God. Next, then, we are saved by faith alone. Salvation is by God's faith and in faith in God and God alone. You cannot save yourself. And what had happened in the Catholic Church at that time, is they had taken justification, meaning your legal declaration of innocent before God, clothed in His righteousness, and they've taken the sanctification, the work of the Holy Spirit, to purify you and made them one. And so, what, this is how it works out. If you're following the Roman Catholic way of thinking, you, then they give you these sacraments that you're going to work and keep doing in order to maintain your salvation. So everything from baptism to being married in the church to going to communion, a mass, and all the other things that are going, all of these things are saving in and of themselves. So if you stop doing them, you are now no longer have a chance of being in heaven. We don't know what's going on with your soul, but the Bible teaches us that we are saved by faith and faith alone. And last but not least... All is done, sola deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. Everything is done for God's glory and God's glory alone. We are not here to glorify the church. We are here to glorify God and everything that He has said. Listening to Luther's reasoning, when he stood before councils, when he stood before the Roman, I mean, sorry, the German world at that time, ready to kill him if they could, ready to ask him, do you, all these pamphlets that you have in front of you, are you going to renounce them or not? And remember, as we were studying on Monday, we, we saw that he asked for a 24-hour time period to pray it over and to think it over. And we, got, we were listening to him wrestle with this of just, Lord, I know you've called me for this, but boy, this is, I'll summarizing him, boy, this is tough. All right, I'd rather be somewhere else, but I know you've called me for this. And he stands up in, in front of them. And if history calls us, this man who was at times could be incredibly boisterous, this man who was at times seen as very arrogant, here's what he said. Unless I'm convinced by Scripture and plain reasoning, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I cannot do anything else. God help me. Luther here was admitting he has one position and one position alone, and he can't, he can't waver on it. To go against Scripture is to go against God, and I will not do that, he said. Luther, though, did not deny that church tradition could not be right. He did not deny that it could not be right, but the only reason it was right was because it agreed with the Bible. What he was trying to say is the Bible is the standard, not tradition. 
But if tradition is okay with the Bible, the tradition is right. Why? Because the Bible said so. This is what his arguments were. Luther, in one of his debates with Rome, he said this, A simple layman argued, armed with Scripture is to be believed above a pope or a council without it. A simple layman armed with Scripture is to believe above a pope or a council without it. Neither the church nor the pope can establish articles of faith. They must come from Scripture. Creeds and statement of faith are very helpful. They're summary points, but they only are as helpful as long as they agree with Scripture, because Scripture is the final rule of faith and practice. We don't need to look anywhere else. Now, though, this has uh, been under attack. Sola Scriptura is under attack in every generation. We are one generation away from this book being a book of fairy tales and fables than actually the written Word of Almighty God. And we need to make sure we are not drawn away by simple little, little ditties, little phrases. Sadly, as our generations have become less and less a people of thinking people, we become a, a generation of sound bites. I would encourage you, do not become lazy thinkers. Wrestle with things of thoughts and hard thoughts. Because there's a warning in 2 Timothy here. 2 Timothy 3.16 again. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Do we really believe that Scripture is what trains and molds and equips us for every good thing? Do we really believe that? And if we really believe that, that's the only thing that we need to give you by God's grace as shepherds of the flock. That's what you need. Because Paul's going to go on to say here, as he's writing this to Timothy, in one of the last books that Paul wrote, he says, I charge you in verse four, chapter 4, verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and Jesus Christ, who is to be judge of the living and the dead at His appearance. Here's what he tells him in verse 2. What does he say? Give him a nice little fable. Give him a little ear tickling. No, he says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time has come when people will not endure sound teaching and have itching ears and will accumulate for themselves teachers that suit their own passion and they will turn away from the truth and wander off into fables. That literally is happening in our day and age today. I will not tell you the church where this came from, but I was looking through different uh, five-part series of this church and their uh, five-part series that they were going through was dips and tips. What a dip and a tip is, which I didn't even understand what that meant, but dips and tips are the ups and downs of life. And the, the point of this sermon series was in the dips and tips, you are supposed to learn how to claim victory in the dips and the tips of life. And so we took the Bible and made it into a life hack, and it's taught by what you would, I would call an all-star pastor or entertainer and giving you little nuggets of little dips and tips in life, tickling your ears about, you know what, even when you're down, here's your little tip for victory, and when you're up, here's your little tip for victory. And it was taking the Bible as if it was seasoning and just sprinkling it on your life as if we need to take this entertainment and make it sound like because we got to tickle the ears to get you guys to keep coming back. These are what are called felt-need sermons where the preacher decides this is what he thinks the church needs. And so then he, what he does is he becomes sovereign over the Word, and he starts saying, what I'm going to do is I'm going to just drop little truth, little truth tidbits all over the place. Instead, what Calvin reminded the guys he was training, he said, 
the message of Scripture from the pulpit is sovereign. Sovereign over the preacher and the people. The message of Scripture is sovereign over even the guy that's speaking as well as the people. And so what happened in our day and age is that we are allowing the preacher to be sovereign over the text as if a verse-by-verse, line-by-line study is not how God wants us to do it with just little snag little tidbits here and there and give you little morsels as if and go on your way and pat you on the head and say, go be blessed. And we're not preparing you for the battle that is in front of us. And so all of a sudden, when the weights of the world come at us, we don't run to Scripture. We run to little jingles and little tidbits. And when your dips and tips are happening, are you ready to handle the weight of the world? The answer is no. Only in the foundational truth that God has given us can we do this. But even that being said, I really want to, as I like to remind us that we like to be equal opportunity offenders, and uh, I'd like to address a situation that goes on in the Protestant world that happens all the time. So if you're a kid that is coming up to your senior year, you will get a question that is asked to you all the time. What are you going to do next year? And usually, if you're a Christian kid, you get, what's God's will for your life moving forward? Do you know? And so then, you're stuck looking into this crystal ball and trying to figure out, what am I supposed to do? Because no one wants to do the wrong thing, right? You don't want to be out of God's will. You want to be in God's will. And before you know it, you're really wrestling with this. What if I make the wrong decision? What if I go here? What if I go there? And then we, so then we try to give you certain things, and we say things like this. God gave me a sign, so that's why I know God's will. Or we say something like this. God opened a door, so now I'm going in here. Or we say, I put out a fleece, and this is what happened. I had an inner peace about it. I felt led by it. I had a dream. Or I even heard a still, small voice that told me all of these things. All of these things, I want to be clear, are not Scripture. What we have said is, here's what Scripture says, and what are we telling you? You know want to find God's will? Wait until you get a tingling, all right? Or wait until the tingling stops. Or wait until you hear something whispering at you, and you're going to go, who's whispering? If you're hearing voices, we can talk later, all right? And so when you're dealing with all of these, there was a guy named uh, Jim Osmond that wrote a book, which I love the title, God Does Not Whisper, all right? And the beautiful part is he's not whispering. This is about as yelling as you can get to a world when we look at the will of God. And now you want to say, that sounds interesting, Tim, but... um, How do I make everyday choices? Uh, He goes in his book where he says, as long as you're not breaking the moral laws of God and using wisdom from Scripture, go and do. As long as you're not breaking the moral laws of God and you're using wisdom from Scripture, go ahead. And so what I want to do is I want to take a moment here because what happens is this. We say that Scripture alone is what is going to give us what God wants us to do, and then what do we do? Wait for whispering. When you're going, I think he's shouting at you. All right, and so what we're going to do is I'll give you one that many people wrestled with, and maybe you still wrestle with it now, hopefully not if you're already this, but who are you to marry? All right, because nobody wants to marry the wrong person, right? And so then you're going to say to yourself, well, how do I know if I'm going to marry the right person? All right, do I need to get the whisper, you know, someone whispers the name, or do I need to get an internal peace, or do I need to get a tingling, or what are all these other things? And we're going to say, what does Scripture clearly teach us on these things? So, who do I marry? Point number one, if you're marrying, if you're not married, I encourage you to write this down. If you are married, you're not writing this down, it's a checklist, all right? Number one, 
2 Corinthians 16, 14 tells us not to be unequally yoked. So point number one is someone who's a Christian is who you should marry. Point number two, Matthew 19, 46. Jesus is very clear. The person you marry should be someone of the opposite sex. That's number two. Number three, in 1, Chronicle, 1 Corinthians 7, it talks about the biblical qualifications of marriage. The divorced and not the divorced and all of those other things that are there in 1 Corinthians 7. Matthew 19, 3 through 9 also reminds us you need to marry someone who is single. All right, you're not to marry someone who is already married. And you're sitting here and go, well, duh, well, we're narrowing down the field here. All right, then we take clear teaching and then we take wisdom teaching. Here's where wisdom teaching comes in. This is more of speaking of a man looking for a wife. Proverbs 21.9 tells us we are not to marry a contentious woman. So if you're dating someone and she's contentious, Proverbs is telling us that would be a, not a wise decision. Number two, not a woman who lacks discretion. Proverbs 11.22. Proverbs 10.26 tells us not to marry a lazy person. And even Proverbs 5 tells us not to marry an immoral person. Do you see where the wisdom of God is starting to point us in this direction? And then I would add, and this one is not found in Scripture, but I would call it common sense, as common as common can be. The individual that you are to marry must also want to marry you. All right? And as you get to these things, all right, there should not be a stress of going, who am I to marry? What is the, are they single? Are they already married? And we can just go down through the line, and when they meet those categories, especially the last one, all right, the last one's huge. Let's not miss that one, all right? Should you sit there and say, I wonder what God wants me to do? I wonder what His Word had says. What we do is you go ahead and follow what the Word of God said and ask the young lady to marry you or the young man, vice versa. You marry them. We don't wrestle through this. But what happens is this. We all are looking for the tingling, the whispering, all these other things when the Word of God boldly sounds from His throne in Scripture and we all will go, yes, Tim, we believe in Scripture alone, but we don't live like it. You know, how do I know what career I should go to? Well, you shouldn't be wrestling over the career you should go to. Should I be a, man of the, uh, should I be a woman of the night or should I be this over here? You're going to go, obviously not this. All right, should I be a bank robber or a locksmith? All right, you know, like these are not wrestling questions. But what happens is we sit here and we are so worried about the will of God, figuring it out as if it's some type of fictitious thing over here. And I would say the word of God speaks boldly from his word. He thunders from heaven. And so we stand and sadly we say things like scripture alone, but then we go and live differently. So we ask ourselves, what did we learn today? Here's what I pray we've learned. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. And just in case if you're wondering, back to our marriage example, what's a good work? What I would say probably getting married is a good work. So what will equip you for that? To even to who to marry? The Word of God? You can fill in that word work there. You can fill in good thing. Just in case if you're wondering, that means everything. Do we really believe that as, that is equips us for everything? This is where the rubber meets the road for us as a church. 
Do we really believe that or not? Because we are going to be under attack in so many ways. As I've, as I've said in the past, only the imagination can even give us, and it's interesting, if you were to go back 10 years ago and say the things that we're wrestling with now, 10 years from now, you would have been saying this is what the church is going to be facing. None of you would have guessed it. And so to think that somehow we're going to craft up some type of plan to be ready for the next 10 years is a problem. The only plan that we have is the same plan we had back then. Know the Word of God. Allow the Word of God to be your only rule of faith and practice because that will stand the test of time. No well-crafted plan or anything else. Only what God's Word says and God's Word says alone. And these are the truths that we don't have to apologize for. These are the truths that have stood the test of time. And these are the truths that, by God's grace, allowed a group of men and women in the Reformation to literally give their lives for us to have. The blood of the Reformers is what has given us a copy of Scripture that we can actually read in our own language. May we never take that for granted. The blessing that you can open the Bible and read it yourself. May that be something that we are continually thanking God for. Let's look, Lord, in prayer. Dearly Father, we stand amazed that you would redeem that you would save. As we turn our hearts and our minds to the communion table and that great sacrifice that your Son gave, may our hearts not wander to other things, but the most important thing, of being grateful for that great grace and mercy that you showered upon us while we were still sinners, you died for us. Thank you, that is by your truth, and your truth alone that we stand. In your son's name we pray. Amen. You could stand with us as we sing.